The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 13. The word of God speaks to us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us. Thanks, Julia. You can be seated. Uh, well, I don't know what your lunch plans are, but I hope it's not barbecue. So, man, no one paid attention to that scripture reading, huh? Uh, hey, uh, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Bryce Johnson. I am a pastoral resident here, um, and it is a joy and honor to open God's Word with you. Um, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, uh, we're going to be in the passage we just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, there are copies on our community groups table, on our welcome table out there. Um, and our, uh, we just ask you to please grab one. That is for you. Take that with you. For the last several months, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians, um, and it's a letter that addresses a church um, that has so many issues. It's, there's divisions left and right. There, um, there's, there's issues that would frankly make Jerry Springer blush, uh, right? There, there are all sorts of things, things that we've discussed and things that are still to come. But one of the beautiful and wonderful things of this letter is that it shows that Christianity is not just for the people who have their lives cleaned up or their lives put back together. You, you read the issues that this church, these Christians in Corinth are walking through, and you're like, okay, I'm jacked up, but I'm not doing that, right? It, it reminds us that the gospel is not just for those who are perfect or, or just struggle with the quote-unquote acceptable sins, but the good news of Jesus is for people who are broken spiritually financially, emotionally, sexually, and, and even physically. And we take the last three weeks to jump ahead to the end of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, um, to explore this vision uh, that the Bible has, uh, that, uh, that God has, of what masculinity looks like. That's not a cultural trope or a caricature. 
but a picture of what God calls and commands uh, and cre- has created men for. And so if you missed it, I uh, want to encourage you to head towards our website and access it. I um, really recommend that. But today we're going to jump back into where we left off in the middle of 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And here Paul is addressing a series of questions that the Christians in Corinth had written to him about. So they ask him all these series of questions, and what Paul's been doing is systematically just dealing with each one of these issues. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 dealt with the issue of marriage and remarriage and divorce and singleness. And now, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, Paul deals with this issue of food offered to idols, idol meat. Now, my guess is that most of you in this room will never have to worry about whether or not you can eat food that has been once upon a time offered to an idol, right? My, my guess is that none of you struggle with that, will, will ever struggle with that, um, though there are brothers and sisters of ours in other parts of the world, especially in Asia, that still struggle with this and deal with this specific issue. But for the rest of us, there's actually a broader issue at hand that Paul is addressing. And the big question for us, the big question that we're going to explore is, how do we respond to believers we disagree with? How do we respond to believers we disagree with? How do we live in love and worship alongside Christians who hold differing positions on issues than we do? Differing positions to the point where it feels like it should drive us apart, where it feels like it should cause us to go our separate ways. And it feels especially poignant the last several years as, as we've seen Christians separate along political lines and, and uh, how we respond to COVID or masks. And, and this sermon's not about politics or COVID or masks, but it does, I, I believe it does speak into how we approach issues that threaten to divide us. I believe that God has preserved this text for 2,000 years to show us how we're to be a community that lives out and displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. To teach us how we can live in love uh, with one another, live in community to display a picture of kingdom love. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we've got two mo- movements. First, we're going to look at the original issue. We're going to look at what the people in Corinth were dealing with. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the question how can we know if we're responding like the people in Corinth are responding, right? How do we avoid some of the traps that they were falling into? And so, again, if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1. Paul's writing, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, Corinth was this booming city. It's, it's this huge, bra- uh, sprawling metropol- uh, metropolis area um, with all sorts of cultures um, and uh, influences where people would come uh, to Corinth and bring their practices, their cultures, um, the things that, uh, their, their religious practices. And so temples, temples were obviously hubs of religious practice, but they were also hubs of social practice. They're, they're hubs of social life. Um, and there were temples everywhere. And so if you live in Corinth and you became a Christian, right, you, you, you turned from your former ways and you started following Jesus, you were daily and regularly surrounded by your former way of life. You were surrounded by uh, your, uh, not just your former friends, but your former gods, uh, your former way of life. 
And temples um, were like the restaurants of the day, but not just like the restaurants. They were like the event venues, right? So, so not too dissimilar from the event venue we're sitting in right now. Uh, temples were where people would host events and parties. And so people would bring their animals to sacrifice to the temple. They would offer it, and the priests would offer this animal to an idol. And then they would take a third of it for themselves, right, as, as, as what the priests would do. A third of it would burn up. And then a third of it was given back to, do, uh, to, to the person who offered it to do whatever they wanted. And so people would usually sell this in the marketplace um, or, or they would throw events or you know, give it to their friends. Um, in fact, uh, almost all meat in Corinth would have at one point in time been offered to a pagan deity. It was very popular for people to throw parties in these temples and serve food that had first been offered to an idol. And so inevitably... Right? Inevitably, Christians would be invited to these parties. And, and these were events uh, where um, you made connections, where you made, met people of influence, where you got business deals done, but also where you reconnected with friends, where, where you celebrated events. And, and so going to these events was critical for one's, not just one's social standing, but potentially one's financial standing. And so imagine uh, with me that your coworker, that... Uh, you've been working alongside for all these years that you've been um, faithfully praying for and witnessing with the gospel of Jesus Christ invites you to his daughter's wedding, right? And so you go because you want to love and support your coworker. It'll be at this pagan temple, and you go to support your coworker because, again, he's one of your three. You've been praying with him. You've been, you've been sharing the gospel of Jesus. And as you're sitting there at the reception in this temple, in this reception hall, they start bringing out these platters of meat, right? Almost like you're at a Brazilian steakhouse. You, you, you know what it's like, right? They, they come around with the rounds, with the skewers, right? And they come around, it's got some ribeye, and then the next is the lamb chops. You've got some filet mignon, and you just stack up your plate, right? It just smells tantalizing. Your mouth is salivating, as it is right now. My mouth is salivating. And as you're about to dig in, you realize, hey, not too long ago, just this morning, this meat was offered to the goddess Venus. I was blessed by a pagan priest. It was sacrificed to a, an idol and then cooked and brought to you. And so then, then the question comes to mind, okay, well, what do I do now, right? Do you eat it? Do you um, walk out and offend your host? Do you just sit there and just ignore the food, ignore the delicious smells, and everyone's like, hey, man, what, what, what's going on? You got a diet? What, what's... What do you do? An issue arose among the Christians in Corinth. And the question was, can you be a Christian and eat this meat? And eat meat that's been offered to an idol? Can a Christian in good conscience eat food that had been offered as part of a pagan ritual? And one group of Christians said, well, yes. Yes, of course you can. It's not a big deal. Listen, idols aren't even real. Idols aren't even real. Look at what Paul, uh, Paul uh, says in verse 4. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and he quotes them because they've written to him, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. And so these Christians are saying, well, of course you can eat this meat. Of course you can eat this meat. Because, listen, we all know that there's only one true God, right? Of course you can eat this meat. Of course you can eat this meat because we all know that idols are nothing but empty statues, so what's the big deal, right? If, we're, if, we're, if this food is being offered to nothing, something that has no real power, then what's the big deal? In fact, didn't Christ set us free from regulations and rules 
so that we don't have to follow rules like don't touch, don't handle, don't eat? Aren't we free in Christ? And then, in fact, whether or not you can handle it, just because your conscience is weak, don't say that I can't eat it. Right? You can't stop me from going and participating because I don't have a problem with it. So these Christians were elevating their rights and their freedom that they had in Christ. Now, the other group is referred to as weak, not because they're physically weak or emotionally weak, but because their conscience was more sensitive to this issue. So they're most likely newer converts to Christianity who not too long ago had been coming to these temples themselves and worshiping at the temple of Zeus or Saturn and bringing sacrifices themselves. So they're saying, I, I remember going to the temple. I remember going to the temple and bringing my sacrifice. I remember going to the temple and, and fervently praying that Apollo would bless me, fervently praying that the sacrifice would cause, you know, insert idol's name, to accept me. I remember how I believed so much in that God. And so how could you eat that food? How could you eat it? Don't you know that that food was offered to a false idol? Don't you know where that food was this morning? We can't be a part of that. And for them, eating food offered to idols felt like they were going back to their pagan ways. It felt like they were going backwards. It felt like, uh, it, and not just that, it was a temptation for them to not just go back to their old ways, but potentially to syncretize or to bring together, to tie in their former ways with following Jesus, right? They're, they're, all of a sudden, they're confused. of like, well, if they can go and, and eat and it's okay, well, well maybe I can. But, but their conscience was, was torn, was conflicted. Now, before we roll our eyes or check out, right, this passage is more than just food. Um, it, it's actually, uh, I was reading this and realized, man, I've got a, an almost direct correlation in my life. Um, my, I've uh, I've told many of you this. I think I mentioned this in my last sermon. Um, I, both my children have this incredibly rare genetic uh, disease um, that they've inherited from both my wife and I um, that causes them to not be able to uh, eat uh, fat in foods. Their bodies uh, can't process it. They can't break it down, and so it just builds up in their blood. Uh, and so one of the things that we've realized is that, man, there's food that our kids can't eat. Uh, right? Uh, it, it, it feels so real uh, for me. But more than that, we see this issue uh, every day, right? Church members who agree on the very same core doctrinal issues on the foundations of the gospel, church members who agree on so much, who nevertheless part ways or separate or divide over something that's not primary, over something that's secondary or tertiary. How many times have you looked at a Christian and, and asked, how could you do that? Right? How could you do that? How could you go to that? How could you go to that place? Or, or how could you watch that show? Don't you know, don't you know what, what they're promoting in that show? How, how could you vote for that politician? Or how many times have you been asked that question yourself? And how many times have you offered just neat, tidy rebuttals, complete with chapter and verse? See, these are often issues that weren't just clear morality issues. They were issues of conscience. They were gray areas. The Corinthians are not dealing with something we're unfamiliar with because both sides couldn't empathize or wouldn't understand, uh, wouldn't try to understand the other side. And so the first group says, hey, Paul, don't we all have this knowledge? 
hey, Paul, don't we all know that idols aren't real? Can, can you help us out? Can you help us out and just correct these weak Christians here? And here's the thing. Paul agrees with them. He says, you're right. You, you're right. Idols aren't real or they don't have a real existence. You're right. There is one true God. But hey, not everyone actually has this knowledge. Right? Not everyone actually knows this experientially. And when you exercise your right to go to these temples and eat this idol meat, you're defiling and destroying your brothers and sisters in the faith whose conscience is weak. See, this wasn't a matter of just offending someone. This was a matter of people's, of people's faith. People's faith was being destroyed because their hearts couldn't reconcile with the knowledge they were being told. And so how do we work to ensure that we're not destroying the faith of our brothers and sisters? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at. How do we work to ensure that you and I, in our attempt to uh, walk out in our freedoms, aren't destroying the faith of our brothers and sisters? So we're going to, how do we know if we're elevating our freedoms and rights? What are the signs, what are the signs that we might be stumbling blocks to the weak, all right? So, so that's where we're going. We've got a few diagnostic, uh, few diagnostic uh, lines, things that uh, show up sort of like the blinking lights on our dashboard. Hey, if, if this is there, it might be a sign that we might be using our rights to trample over our brothers and sisters. And so the first, first diagnostic sign is we measure ourselves by what we know over what we love by what we know over how we love others, right? So here's a question for me. Friends, how do you assess your spiritual maturity? How do you know? As you, as you think about your life and your growth in Jesus, how do you assess or ascertain how you're growing in Christ? See, this one group was flaunting their knowledge, their theology over the other group. It's like, don't we all know Paul? Come on. We're dealing with common knowledge here. Hey, hey, weaker Christians, let, 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 me, let me correct your theology here. Let, let me just drop a truth bomb here. And Paul, Paul, said, Paul responds in verse, verse 1. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but, but, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In other words, you can grow in knowledge, but you might end up like a balloon. So imagine with me, you've all blown a balloon, I'm assuming, at one point or another for some children's event, right? We blow balloons, uh, and, and you just blow, 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 and it just gets larger, right? Larger, it gets more impressive. Uh, if you've got young kids around you, they want you to make it as big as you can, right? It's large and impressive, but at the end of the day, it's just full of empty air, right? It's full of empty air, and it's impressive until pressure from within or pressure from outside comes upon it, right? And then you realize how fragile it was all along. He says, or, or you can build up in love, which builds up like a strong wall, right? Brick by brick, it has substance, it has strength, and as it gets built up little by little, it can handle the weight of pressure that's put upon it. it can handle, so you could push your whole weight, you could put the weight of this whole room against the wall, and it'll withstand the pressure. Now, he's not downplaying knowledge, 
right? Paul spent so much of his time in letters teaching us about God and teaching us about the grace that we have in Christ Jesus. Knowledge is important, right? In fact, one of the ways we, uh, one of the ways we love something is by growing in our knowledge of it, right? Uh, I love my wife more by knowing her more, right? If, if, if I told you I love my wife and you asked me when she was born, or what day she, what her birthday was, and I was like, I, I don't know, but I really love her, right? You'd look at me funny, or you'd be like, hey, what, what's, you know, what does she like to eat? Food, I don't know, but, but she's really great, <laughs> and she loves me too, right? We, we would know that's inherently there's something off, right? Love comes with some knowledge to it. And here at Frontline, we care deeply about knowing God rightly, right? Knowing him accurately and proclaiming the truths about God correctly Scripture tells us to love the Lord our God with all your mind, soul, and strength. But there's a way to gain knowledge where it doesn't lead to love. There's, right, we all probably know people like that who who are so smart, who can can unpack the deep things of God, right? Who can tell you every eschatological position out there, right? Who can can parse out the finer points of Calvinism and Arminianism and, and all these things, but they're cold, but it doesn't lead to actual love of neighbor and loving others. It's a knowledge that ends on itself. It's more concerned about serving yourself, about building yourself up. So you can drop truth bombs on people, right? Or correct every theological position you come across. You, you become like a walking, and I took that personally, Michael Jordan meme. Right, where you're just trying to correct every errant or quasi heretical position out there. I'm sorry, I, I lost like 90% of you with that with that reference. Uh, watch the last dance if you haven't. Um, we're encouraged to grow in love, right? But here's the question: How do we know we're actually acting in love? How do we know, right? Because I can say I'm acting and speaking in love, but it can actually be a picture or a vision of love that looks less like the biblical vision of love and more like what the world or my own personal uh, picture of love is. So Paul tells us, if you want to know, if you're walking out a picture of biblical love, love builds up. Love builds up. It seeks the good of others. Later on in chapter 13, Paul tells us that, hey, I can have all knowledge and I can understand all the deep mysteries of God, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. One commentator says it this way. He says, for Paul, the essence of Christian theology, the essence of Christian theology is love, not knowledge. Here's the thing. Knowledge and love aren't at odds with one another, right? But knowledge should be grounded in love, which means it should seek to build others up and serve others. Love doesn't tear down. It doesn't belittle. It doesn't demean. And love isn't concerned primarily with being right. And why is that? It's because our identity is not found in the fact that we know God. But Paul tells us in verse 3, but that God knows us. Our identity is found in the fact that God knows us. (laughs) In fact, he says, if anyone thinks he knows something, you actually show that you don't know anything. (laughs) Right? If you think you know all things, you're actually revealing your own ignorance in that. It's because you and I know imperfectly. Right? You and I know imperfectly. But God does know perfectly. 
God does it, and he knows you and I perfectly. You and I who are weak and broken and selfish and sinful, he knows perfectly, and yet he still loves us and chooses to set his love upon us. And so, friends, what comes to your mind when, when, the, when you ruminate on that truth? Is it a, he should, right? Is it, is it pride? Is it a sense of your own worthiness? It should actually drive us to humility, right? Humility. What? God would, God loves me? God knows me? God would choose to send his son and set his love upon me? God would adopt me into his family? It should bring up humility. Look at verse 6. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. He's saying we're known by God who created everything through Jesus Christ. We're known by him, and we exist primarily for God. And so if we exist for God and through God, then here's some logic for you. Then we don't exist primarily for ourselves, right? We're made for a greater purpose than doing what I want, when I want. Friends, this, this is true knowledge that starts to lead you towards love of others and allows you to surrender the need to be right. right? Because if God has been this way to me, if Jesus gave up his rights on the cross to stand in my place and I exist primarily for God, then surely I could show love with my brother or sister in the faith even when we disagree. And that's why even before he answers their question of like, can we, can't we, Paul spends time addressing their posture. You think about that? He could have just come out and be like, hey, actually, weak brothers, you're wrong. Strong brothers are right. Here's why. Next question. But no, he spends 13 verses, in fact, most of chapter 9 as well, unpacking this because what he's after, God is after not just your right knowledge of issues. He's after your heart. He's after how you live this out. Like a loving father, Paul tells him, friends, friends, you've been asking the wrong question this whole time. You're asking, okay, what's right and what's wrong? What's, what's my right? What's my freedom in this? How, how can I do the thing that I want? He's saying, no, 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 the right question is, how can I love my brother or sister in Christ? And that's the primary ethical question for all of us. Now, I want us to pause and see the heart of God here. We can be so obsessed with that question of what can we do? What can't we do? Where is the line? How far is too far? What can I, um, you know, what can I watch? What can I not watch? And we miss the most important question, which is how can I love God and love neighbor? We're so concerned about our freedoms and our rights that we neglect to ask, is there something greater than my personal rights and freedoms that ought to guide or, listen, even restrict the way I understand my personal freedom. And this is the second way we might be elevating our rights over people. If we don't regularly, listen, regularly consider how our actions impact others or how our actions impact the family of God. Here's a question. Do you think about others? Do you think about others? The Corinthians had this freedom to eat the meat that had been offered to idols. They had the freedom. They had the right. 
but in utilizing their right, they weren't considering how their actions would actually impact their fellow believers, right? Because they just assumed the stories, they assumed the beliefs of these Christians that they disagreed with, that they argued with. Listen to how Paul responds in verse 7. He says, hey, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. See, in their desire to do what they wanted, right? In their desire to not have someone else restrict their rights. They did not stop to consider how their actions would impact other Christians. <laughs> because they weren't operating out of love, right? Love stops to consider Love pauses. Love is not just a feeling, friends, right? I can't just say I love my neighbor. It's because I have warm feelings towards them. Love acts. Love stops to consider. And listen, we're a people that love our rights and freedoms to do what seems right to us. And it's a great privilege. I am grateful for to not just live in a country that allows me that, but freedom in the Savior I follow that he has given me rights and freedoms. It's a great privilege. But listen, if you're in Christ, your freedom is for the purpose of glorifying God and loving your neighbor. Your freedom is actually for a purpose that's outside of yourselves. And sometimes we use freedom as a way to just justify doing whatever we want, right? I'm free in Christ, so I can go to this thing. I'm free in Christ, so I can, um, you know, see this person. Or I'm free in Christ, so I don't have to do this thing. And, And in our attempt to not be legalists in the faith, we can drift towards the other end, which is license. We use it as an excuse to let the individual spirit of our day creep into our lives. And this is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, maybe you know the verse, it's going to be up on the screen, he says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He's saying, hey, through love, use the freedom that you have, your rights to serve one another. (laughs) Look what he does here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He reminds the stronger Christians, right, who should know this. He reminds them of the stories of the weaker Christians, right? He reminds them of the stories. He's, He's like, hey, let me tell you about who you're trampling on, right? These were Christians that were still shaking off the years of their former idolatry, these were Christians who still struggled with their former lives, struggled with the ways that they worshipped, the ways that they acted. These were Christians who knew some of the right things. They knew there was one God. They knew there was one Lord and Savior who was over and stronger than anything they had worshipped before. And yet, and yet they still remember their old selves. Friends, I wonder how many of us know the stories and struggles of the people in our lives, the people in our community groups, in our discipleship groups. I wonder how many of us know their backgrounds and what the Lord saved them from, what their former lives were, what what they still struggle with to this day, what they're sensitive to. It's like like if if you have a friend, right, who you know who you know has struggled with alcohol in the past. You're not going to drink around them, right? Because, because you know their story. You know that this is a temptation for them. In love, you choose to withhold your right. 
See, the issue isn't should I or should I not go to a bar? Should I or should I not, not dance? Should I or should I not watch a show like Game of Thrones? The issue is do you know if doing those things would harm the faith of the people that you're with? Are you thinking not only of your faith, are you thinking of the faith of the people that you're with? Faith of the people that you're around? See, freedom in Christ is freedom to serve and build up others. If you have your Bibles, notice the last three verses. There's a, there's a shift in how Paul talks. The first ten verses or so, nine, ten verses, Paul uses just general terms to talk about these weaker weaker Christians, right? He's like, them and uh, these people and, um, and uh, weaker, bro- uh, weaker Christians. And then he shifts his language. He uses the term brother or brother and sister four times in three verses. Four times. And he's driving home this point. He's reminding us that in Christ, you and I are adopted into a family that has a far more eternal significance than your brother or sister of the flesh who does not know Jesus. He's pleading with us. He's pleading with us. And and listen, as a leader, I am pleading with you to see that the people that we're not considering are not just anonymous avatars. They're not just general faces. They're not just people out there. They are brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Brothers and sisters for whom Christ, brothers and sisters whom Christ identifies with. He says, listen, um, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding your, their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Christ identifies with his people. Right? When you sin against them, you sin against Christ. I fear far too often we, we operate with the same question that Cain had in Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. God comes up to Cain and he says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? Do you remember Cain's response? He said, am I my brother's keeper? Right? Am I my brother's keeper? Hey, God, why are you asking me? Why don't you go, why don't you go ask him? Hey, get off my back. <laughs> but the overwhelming witness of Scripture is that in the community of faith, in this new community that Jesus is creating, the answer is yes. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. We have a sense of responsibility and obligation for the faith and spiritual flourishing of each other. And in an age of increasing, increasing individualism, guys, this is a distinctly countercultural vision that we'd be so concerned with the faith and well-being of our brothers and sisters that we would willingly withhold some of our rights so as to not destroy them. Right? The ethos of our day is, man, you do you. You do what you want. And if you're offended by that, hey, that's on you. And the biblical vision is like, no. You care about the people in your community group. You care about your family. God tells us to use our God-given freedoms to build others up. It might be one of the biggest apologetics we have. I'm not just trying to one-up people with, with these clever arguments, but the way we love one another and lay down our rights and our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters. So we might be elevating our freedoms over people if we're not regularly considering how our actions impact others. And finally, 
we might not be displaying gospel family love if our question is, okay, but how far do I have to go? How far is too far, right? How far, well, what's the line? Right? In other words, if we hear the call to love our brothers and sisters and lay down our rights, the question may come up, okay, but when can I stop? <laughs> what's the line here? When do, when do I call it? Notice what Paul says in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Here's Paul's stance. He's saying, hey, I will go straight up vegetarian if it means that a brother or sister in Christ will not stumble. And listen, I know some of you in this room get a little uncomfortable thinking about that, right? For some of you, there's, you see a direct correlation between eating meat and the direction our country is headed, right? Like, if you don't eat meat, well, that's why we're, we're going where we're headed. Hey, I, I mentioned uh, at the, or I mentioned earlier that uh, my kids have this uh, rare genetic disorder, um, and it doesn't allow their body to break down fat, right? And so um, if they eat food uh, for an extended period of time that, that contain a lot of fat, it, it, it builds up in their blood and leads to a lifetime of pain and pancreatitis um, and inevitable um, just issues, heart issues, uh, organs breaking down. Um, my wife and I realized uh, at some point, uh, especially as our daughter, who was the first to, uh, to have it as she was growing up, that at some point, if we were going to support and raise these kids, our own diets would have to change. Right? They slowly have to shift. You, you, you could probably tell by looking at me, but uh, I enjoy some of the richer foods in life, right? Like, I can throw down a pizza, pepperoni pizza, right? I love cheeseburgers. I love ice cream. I love tacos, right? I, I mean, you know, it's got, it's got food and calories and fat in it, and I am down. Amen. That's right. But they're food that quite literally would lead our children to destruction. That would quite literally cause their body to shut down. And so as our kids are growing up, um, and as they're starting to eat more and more of the things that we're eating, we've had to realize we've had to change our, not just our cooking, but where we go out to eat and our general eating habits, right? There was a season where uh, our daughter just ate, you know, Cheerios and uh, mangoes, and that was if she ate at all, right? And then we could make our own dish, and, but more and more, she's like, what's that? You know, we're, we're holding a, a, a tortilla chip in our hand, and we're like, oh, this is, this is grown-up food, and she's like, I want that. We said, no, baby girl, this, this hurts your tummy. She said, it does not hurt my tummy, right? And she's so earnest, and she doesn't know, right? She could eat it right now, and it wouldn't, but over time, we know that this food is actually going to cause so much damage to your body. And, and we, we could do the whole thing where, hey, daddy, mommy have different food, and you have different food, and this is how it's going to be for the next 18 years. But we're choosing to join our children in solidarity and love, right? I, I, I love French fries, but French fries don't hold a candle to how much I love my kids. The French fries cause my daughter to stumble, then I will never eat fried food again. I love avocados and nuts. But if avocados give my son pancreatitis, then I will never add guacamole to anything again. 
right? We're laying down our rights in love. And I think most of us in this room can get that, right? Most of us can get that because, of course, you would give up food for your children. Of course you'd do that, right? I, in fact, I would give up even far more than that. If all I'm giving up is rich food, then I'm not giving up too much, right? I would willingly drink my meals for the rest of my days if it meant that my kids would not be in pain. In fact, I'm giving up something far more valuable if I choose something other than the health and well-being of my kids. And that's the heart that Paul has for these Christians, the heart that Paul is asking us to have. He's imploring us to have for our brothers and sisters in the faith. Not to ask, okay, how many times do I have to not do this? Or, or how many times do I have to ask, hey, is this okay, is this not okay? Or, or, or what freedoms are okay or off limits? But to say, how can I love them even more? How can I love them more? How can I gain not just the spiritual okayness, but the spiritual health and vitality and flourishing of my spiritual family? In fact, it's right there in verse 11. Right there in verse 11, he says, the brother for whom Christ died. Christ died for them. Christ died for you. Yes and amen, but Christ also died for the person sitting next to you. Christ laid down his rights. Christ, who is God, almighty, who willingly laid down his life for us. Not, not just a preference. He laid down his very life. When you and I were weak, and not just weak, when you and I were enemies and actively opposed to God and rejected him, Christ showed love by humbling himself, by putting off flesh, by walking this earth. And died and rose again so that you and I might be reconciled to God. And again, he died not just for your sins, but for the sins of the person sitting next to you. He died for the sins of the people who are in your community group. Friends, if Christ died for you and your brother and your sister, then you can lay down your rights for your brother and sister. The question is not how much do I lay down. The question is how do I dare keep back when eternity's at stake? How can I dare keep back when eternity's at stake? And this is why our identity in Christ has to be rooted in the gospel. So we're not so enmeshed in and entwined with, with, with one another that we lose sight of each other, but with clarity and love, knowing who we are in Jesus, adopted into the family of God, we can move in love and serve one another. Remembering that we're not primarily loved because what you did or didn't do or how perfectly you love, but because of Jesus who died for you, who made you a new creation and frees you from anxiously trying to meet the needs of everyone around you, frees you from living selfishly. And so here are a few questions for us to consider as we close. Here's a question. What am I unwilling to give up to love my brother or sister? What am I unwilling to give up to love my brother or sister? What comes to mind? What's, 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 what's off the table? Second question, what does this mean for your community? What does this mean for your community and how you engage in your community, how you engage in your community groups and your discipleship groups? And third, what freedom or rights should you reconsider for the sake of the faith of those around you? What freedom or rights should you reconsider for the sake of the faith of the people around you? Here's the thing, this passage is not telling us you can't have fun anymore. You can't do the things that you once used to do guilt-free, but it's encouraging us. Listen, it's encouraging us to actually fight for one another, 
to build up one another brick by brick that we might be a structure that can withstand the pressures of the world for the glory of God and the sake of his name. Let's pray.